Well, uh, ever since the World uh, Cup uh, in Germany in 2006, the Shealy family have been into football. Um, <clears throat> you can tell that because we don't even call it soccer anymore. In fact, that word's almost banned in our house now. It's always got to be called football. And especially I am becoming a football tragic. And you can tell that because I have become more and more fascinated with football tactics. So I've invested quite a bit of my time of late learning about the Dutch system of football and comparing it to the Italian system of football and the South American system of football, and I'm really enjoying the Spanish system of playing. I've got a long way to go, but I love watching football games. I love trying to analyse the tactics. I love the way tactics shift throughout a game. I love trying to analyse the game plans of the different coaches, which is tragic. I understand that, and I can tell by some of the expressions of the ladies' faces. But it's a life, sort of. It's really great, though, when you get to hear a coach explaining his tactics. It's really great when you get to hear a coach revealing what's on his mind, what he's trying to get his players to do on the field, and then to to see it get played out. That's terrific. And a good football player will always learn the game plan of his coach, and that game plan will shape entirely what he does on the field. Well, football is pretty big, the world game, in fact. But imagine if God would let us in on his game plan. Imagine if God would let us in on what he is doing in the world. If it makes a difference knowing what the coach's game plan is for a football match, if that would be a privilege, imagine the privilege of actually being an insider to what God is doing in the world. And if a football player, if his game is shaped entirely by the coach's game plan, then imagine knowing what God's game plan was for creation, how much that would shape the way that you live. Well, in fact, that's exactly what we find in Ephesians chapter 1. We've been comparing Ephesians chapter 1 to a catalogue of blessing. And if you like, we've reached page 4 of our catalogue. It's verses 9 and 10 um, of chapter 1. And what we read there is that God has a game plan and that God makes his game plan known. And he reveals it to us so that we can get into the game. So make sure you have your Bible open in Ephesians chapter 1. You'll notice on your outline we're going to jump around a little bit. Um, I've changed the outline slightly. And if you're an outline follower, I might just quickly tell you what I'm going to do so that you don't get confused later. If you notice, I've got counting the blessing down the end, but I'm actually going to count the blessing twice. Okay, So when we get to that little subheading, all things in heaven, I'm going to count the blessing after that. And after the little subheading, all things on earth, I'm going to count the blessing again. That may have confused you more, but we'll see. How about we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the privileges you've been showing us in this tremendous part of your scriptures and again father tonight as we delve into things far beyond our ability to cope with and grasp fully we again father ask for your help please just enlarge our minds our imaginations enlarge our hearts a little bit father so that we can properly appreciate the things that you're sharing with us give us uh, energy and attention on a tuesday night help us father to grapple with these things And we want our minds stretched, Father. We want our hearts enlivened so that we might properly understand the privilege of belonging to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, point one on your outline. 
And let's jump straight in. Have a look at verse 9 with me, if you can, in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 9. Let me read it. And he, that is God, and he made known to us the mystery of his will. So there it is, okay, in black and white. Used to be a secret, used to be a mystery, but in coming to Christ, in being a Christian, God unveils his game plan. God makes known to us the mystery of his will. God lets us in on the most important information anywhere in the entire universe. This is more important, more valuable than than the nuclear launch codes of the US military. This information is even more important and valuable than the recipe of Coca-Cola. This is more important than any state secret. The Lord God, the maker and the sustainer of the entire universe, has made known to us, his people, the mystery of his will. He didn't have to, of course. He could have kept it to himself, but he chose to unveil it to us. It's part of him lavishing his grace upon us with all wisdom and understanding. That's how Paul expresses it in verse 8. Lavishing his grace upon us in all wisdom and understanding. It pleased him, we're told in verse 9, it pleased him to make known to us the mystery of his will. In the same way, actually, back in verse 5, in the same way that it pleased him to predestine us to be adopted as his children. In the very same way it pleased him to make known to us the mystery of his will. It's a tremendous blessing. We need to ponder it because if you belong to Jesus, you see, you you are now an insider to the plans and purposes of God. Plans and purposes that have been in place for all eternity. Plans and purposes that existed before even the creation of the world. Plans and purposes that extend into eternity future. God, in grace and delight, unveils the mystery of his will to his people. You know, the boss calls you into work, into his office at work and says, you know, with a smile and he puts his hand on your arm, let me share with you the plans I have for the future of the company and let me share where I think you'll be in it. That's a great privilege, isn't it? The Lord God, who chose you before the creation of the world, predestined you to be adopted as his child, redeemed you from your sins by the death of his son, your heavenly father says, let me tell you how everything fits together. Let me tell you where it is all heading. Let me show you the big, wonderful, glorious picture. That's a blessing. That's a privilege. God makes known to us the mystery of his will. So what is his will that he makes known to us? What does he unveil to us? Well, it's point two on your outlines. Let me read again verses 9 and 10. And God made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. I don't know if you can spot the, the plan. It's that last phrase, hopefully, that will jump out at us, to bring all things, can you see it there on your page? To bring all things in heaven and on earth under one head, even Christ. Christ. That's God's plan. That's what he has revealed to us. God is bringing all things together under Christ. And you might be thinking, well, is that it? A plan from all eternity? I was expecting something a bit grander. 
But it's worth pausing for a moment and make sure we begin at least to grasp just how grand it is, how massive this plan is. So I want to spend a few moments doing that. It's a grand plan. If we could describe our world in just one word, I wonder what word you would choose. One word that might capture something of our world at the moment. My suggestion is the word conflict. Conflict. That is our world. Both globally and locally, we are inflicted and infected by conflict. From the battlefields of Sudan to the deserts of Afghanistan, to the cities of the Middle East, to the departure lounge of Sydney Airport, to the family law court of Australia, to our shopping centres, to our parliaments, to the committees of our local organisations, to the classrooms and playgrounds of our schools, to our lounge rooms in our homes, even into our bedrooms. Wherever people are gathered together, we find conflict, battle, fighting, And you know what? We could trace it all the way back to the Garden of Eden in the book of Genesis. All the way back there to the perfection of the harmony there between the first man and the first woman. A harmony and a peace symbolized back there in Genesis chapter 2 by the statement that the man and the woman were both naked and felt no shame. Perfect fellowship, you see. Harmony. Peace. But of course, as we keep reading, we read that into that harmony broke sin. A decision to not trust God and his goodness. And what followed immediately was conflict, discord, battle, fighting. The man and the woman, we read, hid from each other in distrust and conflict. But of course, I'm only only describing there the horizontal relationships, our relationships, if you like, people to people. The greatest conflict is is the one, of course, that that inflicts and infects our world is between us and God. And so way back in that garden in Genesis chapter 3, the man and the woman, they not only tried to hide from each other, but they attempted to hide from God. And they accused God and they blamed God. And the peace between the creator and his most treasured creatures was shattered. And so our world today is characterised by conflict. Conflict between us as people. Conflict between us and God. And our rebellion against God continues. Our hostilities are unceasing. No unity. No harmony. No peace. But we need to enlarge the picture even more, you know. We need to capture not only our earthly rebellion because connected to our earthly rebellion is a cosmic spiritual rebellion because back in the garden there was another player wasn't there the serpent the evil one and ever since then there has been this ongoing spiritual rebellion alongside of our earthly rebellion there has been conflict in the spiritual realm what Paul in this letter to the Ephesians calls the powers of this dark world, or in another place, spiritual forces of evil, or the powers and the authorities. That's our world, you see. Personal, global, cosmic conflict, rebellion, aggression, disharmony. And here we are in the middle of it all, sort of. 
Sort of, because you see, God in his grace and his sovereignty, like we've been thinking about over the last few weeks, God in his grace and his sovereignty has rescued us from our rebellion, has captured us to himself as his children. And yet we're still caught up in it all, in the conflict. We are behind enemy lines, if you like. The conflict rages all around us and even within us. And yet, you see, because we are his chosen adopted, redeemed people, God, according to his good pleasure, makes known to us the mystery of his will. He reveals to us that his plan from ages past is this. God is bringing all things together under Christ. Together under Christ. It's a massive plan. It's a grand plan. When the times will have reached their fulfillment, God will have brought all things together under Christ. Hasn't happened yet, but it will. And when it does, there will be nothing, there will be nobody who has not been brought together under Christ. It's a great blessing that God has revealed this to us because although you see it hasn't happened yet, the process has already begun. The game plan is being played out. And the blessing you see of being an insider to this grand game plan is that we can now properly understand what is happening all around us. And we can properly shape our lives and our thinking according to it. And so I want us to think about this grand plan a little closer still so that we can properly appreciate the blessing of God having made it known to us. And the way we're going to do that is to consider God's grand plan in two, two bits, if you like. It's the same two bits that Paul uses in verse 10. He talks about all things in heaven, all things in heaven being brought together under Christ, the spiritual realm. He talks about all things on earth being brought together under Christ. So we're going to consider both of those in turn and count the blessing after each. So firstly, all things on heaven will be brought together under Christ. The heavenly things, the spiritual things, are in rebellion against God. But they will, in the fullness of time, be brought under Christ. The rebellion, their rebellion will be quashed and harmony, cosmic spiritual harmony, will be restored. In fact, even now you see the foundation of that has been laid. And we can check out the way Paul describes it in chapter 1 and verse 21. I want you to have a look with me. Chapter 1 and verse 21, Paul here is speaking about the power of God in raising Christ from the dead and seating Christ at his right hand in the heavenly realm. Now have a look at the way he describes Christ in verse 21. See it with me, verse 21. He says Christ is far above all rule and authority, power and dominion and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. You read that again because it's got lots of big phrases there, but Paul is giving a great description of the spiritual supremacy of Christ. See, Paul's saying the spiritual realm is real. There really are dark spiritual forces of evil, but the thing to, the thing to grab, the thing to appreciate is Jesus is Lord over it all. Jesus has already attained the position of authority over them. Jesus is already seated at God's right hand far above all those rulers and authorities and powers. As powerful as they are, Jesus is infinitely more powerful 
as influential as they are, Jesus is infinitely more influential. Jesus reigns far above all rule and authority, far above all other spiritual powers and authorities. He reigns now in this present age and he will reign in the age to come. And in his resurrection, you see, he has been granted already the position of authority. Those spiritual forces are already under him and though their rebellion continues even now, they have already been defeated. And there will come a time, in the fullness of time, when Jesus will return and he will enforce his authority fully and finally. He will crush all evil. And the one who now is far above all rule and authority will then be acknowledged by all as Lord. Every tongue, every knee will bow and he will be declared as Lord, even by those in the heavenlies, in the spiritual realm. It's a big truth and it's a wonderful truth. And you know what? It's, it's one that we are more than just spectators to. Because incredibly, have a look now with me at chapter 2 and verse 6. I know it's a Tuesday night, but you've got to work with me, okay? Chapter 2 and verse 6. Have a look with me. Chapter 2, verse 6. We read this. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him. Where? In the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. See, our union with Christ mysteriously and wonderfully means that we share in his authority over evil. He is seated in the heavenly realms far above all, all, all those others. We are seated with him. So therefore, you see, we can resist the devil's schemes even now as we wait for the devil's final defeat at the hands of Christ, which is exactly why later in this letter, in chapter 6, I want to see pages turning. Chapter 6, come with me. Chapter 6 and verse 10 Because of that truth, because of our union with Christ, Paul later says in chapter 6, verse 10, he says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. See how it works? Christ Jesus reigns even over the devil even over all of his spiritual forces of evil. We are united to Jesus, and so even now as we face the anger and the schemes of the devil, we simply have to resist him, and he will flee from us. And we know, we know that the the devil's time is short. We know that when the times will have reached their fulfillment, all things in the heavenlies, all spiritual things, will be brought under Christ. We know that at that time there will be no more rebellion. There will be no more conflict. There will be cosmic, spiritual harmony and peace. We know that because it's the will of God and we know that because he has graciously revealed it to us. You see, brothers and sisters, we need to properly count the blessing of God having made that known to us so graciously. We need to count that blessing Because I think knowing that, we can have great clarity and great confidence and great comfort in the midst even of a spiritual rebellion. We can have great clarity now because, you see, there is lots of nonsense taught about the Bible and the spiritual realm, even by people who claim the name of Christ. Lots of nonsense taught. This allows us to have great clarity about the power and the lack of power of the devil even now and his very short-term 
uh, uh, survival, great clarity. We can have great confidence because we know that Jesus reigns. We know that he reigns now. We know that we reign with him. And so we can have great confidence in saying no to the devil. We are not victims of the devil. We can say no to him. We can resist him and he will flee from us. Great confidence and we can have great comfort. Because right now the devil seeks to make war against us as the saints of Christ. But we know that our Lord is bigger than him. And we know that the suffering that we might endure at his hand will last but a short time. And he will be defeated. And we long for an eternity without any of that stuff. An eternity of all things being brought together under Christ. So we need to count the blessing that God is bringing even the heavenly things under Christ. But of course, it's not just the things in heaven. It's the things on earth as well. And in this letter, in the letter to the Ephesians, as Paul thinks about the, the, the things of earth being brought together under Christ, Paul's particular focus is on the issue of Jewish and Gentile believers. So let's think about that for a moment. Let me explain the background very quickly. At a particular moment in human history, okay, God, thousands of years ago really, out of all the nations in the world, chose for himself the descendants of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob to be his special possession. And to them he gave his law. To them he gave his promises. And so you see, to be a Gentile, in other words, to not be, a, not be an Israelite, not to be a Jew, to be a Gentile was to be outside of those blessings. No law, no promises. And so Paul refers to that very thing in chapter 2 and verse 12. Can you come with me to there now? Nice to hear pages turning. Page chapter 2 and verse 12. Paul says, remember to the Gentile readers... He says, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. There it is. There's the situation of being a Gentile. But remember, remember what God has made known to us now as his people. God has made known to us that he is bringing all things on earth together under Christ, even Jew and Gentile. And so Paul goes on in verse 13 of chapter 2 with those lovely first two words, which are always great in the Bible. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. You see it? Through Jesus, through his redeeming and his saving death, even we Gentiles can be brought near to his promises. Verse 14, let me keep reading. For he, that is Jesus, he himself is our peace, who has made the two one, has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace, and this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. There's so many big ideas and great ideas in there. But can you see, in Christ, God is making one man, one new humanity out of the two. God is bringing all things together on earth 
under Christ. No more conflict, no more hostility, reconciliation, peace, unity. And it will be seen, you know, perfectly when the times will have reached their fulfilment. But even now, even now, right now, we can see God creating one new redeemed humanity in Christ. Paul speaks of it again in chapter 3. Again, he talks about the mystery that God has made known. Can you have a look at it with me? It's almost the last one. Chapter 3 and verse 6, Paul says this. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. That's the mystery that's been revealed to us. God in his grace has made known to us what he's doing in the world, and what he's doing is astonishing and glorious. God is bringing all things, things on earth, together under Christ. God is bringing all things in the heavenlies together under Christ. God is bringing all things on earth together under Christ. How are we to count the blessing of that? How are we to count the blessing of God creating one new humanity in Christ? Well, the Apostle Paul spends a fair bit of time in this letter spelling it out for us, actually. and really makes perfect sense. If God is bringing all things together under Christ, especially if God is making one new humanity in Christ, well, then... Unity among believers would be a pretty important implication of all of that. And that is exactly what we find in Ephesians. Last page turn. Chapter 4, verse 1. Have a look at it with me. It says this. As a prisoner for the Lord then. Okay, Paul is writing this letter from uh, prison because of being a Christian. As a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you to live a life worthy of of the calling you have received. We might express it, I urge you to count the blessings that you have received. And he says in verse 2, be completely humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love, make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. That, that is a great passage for spelling out how God's will for creation should shape the way that we live now as his people. And in a word, it's unity. I mean, if God is bringing all things together on earth under Christ, if God has made known to us that he is creating a new humanity, one new humanity in Christ, if we know that, if God has revealed to us that every Christian gathering in church families, whether it was be back there and then in Ephesus in the first century or here and now in Dubbo, we should expect unity. If God is bringing all things together on earth under Christ, we should expect unity more than that, we should make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit. You see, to properly count the blessing of knowing, we know what God is doing in the world. We know that he's bringing all things together under Christ. Wouldn't it be a shocker if people walked into Tuesday church and discovered conflict and gossip and cliques and hostility? That would be completely at odds with what God is doing in the world. 
completely at odds with where God is taking his whole creation. And so Paul says, as redeemed people, as people who've been caught up now in God's game plan, as insiders now to God's game plan, be humble towards each other. Treat the needs of each other as as important as your own. Be gentle with each other. Don't be harsh. Don't be uncaring. In your relationships with each other, don't move on as quickly as you can. In our conversations with each other, we need to ask more questions than we answer. We need to have genuine, costly concern for one another. That's going to happen more than on a Tuesday night, I've got to tell you. We need to bear with each other in love. Because you know what? You're going to irritate each other. We are going to rub each other up the wrong way. We're going to do things that get on each other's nerves. But you see, because we are now insiders to what God is doing in his creation, we're going to respond to all of that by making every effort to keep the unity of the spirit that God has granted us. And if all of that seems small scale to you, then you, you don't realise how big it really is. Because you know what? Unity among believers is, that's top drawer. It's top drawer in God's order of priorities. Because that's what he's doing in the world. That's why lying and deceit and immorality and stealing and unholy anger and unhelpful talk and bitterness and slander, none of that stuff belongs in Tuesday church or any Christian gathering. You've got to keep reading chapter 4, which I'd encourage you to do, to find out more about that. That can have no place in our fellowship, though, because all of that stuff works against unity. All of that stuff goes against, completely against, God's game plan for his creation. They don't fit in with what God is doing in the world. But we are inside, as you see now, to what God is doing. Be crazy and foolish if we weren't on board. God is bringing all things together under Christ. Things in heaven things on earth. We know that. It's got to shape the way we live and think. We've got to get in the game because we know the game plan because God has made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment to bring all things in heaven and earth together under one head, Christ. How about we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace in revealing these things to us. And Father, we need your help still to properly count the blessing of knowing it. We need your help still, Father, in living it out. We thank you for your authority, for your sovereignty. We thank you for the rule of Jesus. We thank you that he is Lord over heavenly and earthly things. We thank you, Father, for including us now as your people into what you're doing in this creation. Father, help us, help us please to dwell on these things carefully and deeply so that we might live them out and properly count the blessing of knowing them. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.